Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me, I have the one and only Lane Norton. So today is an interview with somebody who has uh, made a huge influence on the industry and a huge influence on myself, which we kind of get into right away in the podcast because uh, I discovered Lane after doing a physique competition, gaining a ton of weight and needing to learn how to reverse diet. And at the time, reverse dieting really wasn't a thing. He kind of invented it in a way. And so he was the first person I read into and I kind of went down this rabbit hole and later became a nutrition coach because of him, Eric Helms, Dr. Joe Komzenski, and a couple other people that were talking about this issue they were seeing about metabolic damage, quote unquote, which later turned into metabolic adaptation, reverse dieting, so on and so forth. But Lane is a pro natural bodybuilder. He has won multiple uh, silver medals at world championships, national titles in powerlifting. Uh, he has founded BioLane LLC, which has created a ton of different education things like online, books, uh, courses. I mean, it's endless. He has his PhD in nutritional sciences and a major in biochemistry. So he really knows his shit. He does a lot of research. He's done a lot of research and he dispels myths and reviews a ton of research. So many of you might know him and his content for being the guy that calls out bullshit in the industry. He has become kind of YouTube famous for that. He will find people who are creating dogmatic, propaganda-based content, almost fear-mongering people into fad diets and scary health concerns, but it's not backed by any actual evidence, research, or truth. So he dispels them and honestly calls them out blatantly, which seems brutal, but in all transparency, it's what the industry needs, which is why I was so excited to have him on the podcast because, again, he's had a huge influence on me, and I knew that it was somebody that is going to give us a no-bullshit approach to all the questions I had. So today we talk about reverse dieting versus recovery dieting for a while. We also talk about yo-yo dieting, uh, body fat hyperplasia, which is where you accumulate more fat cells, not just grow the current ones, which could potentially make dieting in the future even harder. We talk about resetting body fat set points, hormones and fats versus calories. We talk about evidence and scientific research versus anecdote and experience. I mean, we talk about a lot of really good content here, and I think you guys are going to get a ton out of it. I tried to focus on things that I knew he was great about uh, with education and he has talked about, but I also tried to touch on some points that I haven't heard him talk about so that we could get some fresh content with Lane. So uh, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm excited about this episode. I'm excited for you guys to hear this episode. So without any further ado, I give you the one and only Dr. Lane Norton. Lane, I want to give you a little bit of background before we actually get into some of the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about today. Um, you've had a huge influence on me and my career uh, and what I've built with our coaching company. And so I kind of want to share with you just because it's a, it's a cool story for you and the listeners to hear, but also just to kind of give you kudos and thank you and, and respect to you for all that you've done in the industry. But Um, In 2011 or 12, I think it was, I competed in my first men's physique competition. Um, Classic 12-week bro meal plan, got shredded, went on a cruise literally the weekend after. Yeah. Uh, No more abs after that. Gained all the way back. Um, Really just, I mean, like it was the first time I ever felt like serious body image issues since I was like a younger chubby kid, right? And uh When I got back from the cruise, I started diving into everything I could possibly find on how do I reverse this, how do I get back, and uh, I stumbled upon a a metabolic damage video, and it was you sitting next to your pool way back, and uh, you were covering metabolic damage at the time, and man, I just went down this rabbit hole of all of your content and just 
reading and reading and watching, even to the point where I literally actually remember emailing you and told you I wanted to intern for you. And I didn't know if you even accepted those things at the time because I was looking for an internship at the time. And, uh, but long story short, man, that led me to finding the muscle and strength pyramids and then like going further and further with a bunch of your different colleagues, Dr. Bill Campbell, who I'm actually like pretty good friends with now on a text basis, uh, was able to help him a little bit with his, uh, research review project. And I know you guys got something in the works as well. Um, and it really catapulted me into nutrition coaching. It was the reason I got into nutrition before that I was just a trainer. And then I started studying and then I went and got certified again and again and again. Um, now some of your, your material is part of the curriculum inside of our internship for the coaches who come on board for us. And, um, I have a chief science officer on staff now, and, and you were a big influence of wanting something like that on the team. Uh, so really just, I just want to say thank you because you've, had a huge influence on me and what we do. And now we have 10 coaches. We work with people all around the world. And um, from afar, you've been a mentor and it's been a big contribution to what we do. And it was all because of the, the reverse diet and the metabolic damage stuff that you started putting out way back. So, um, so thank you, man. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. And that's really cool to hear. Um, yeah, I, I think that was, became one of my big passion projects because <clears throat> I just saw so many uh, competitors really struggle with these issues and it seemed like nobody one wanted to talk about it and two uh, nobody seemed to have an idea of like how to address it what to do about it you know it, it just was kind of like well just don't binge eat after your show and it's like okay well that's that's great advice thanks um, you know c- uh, can we come up with some practical like solutions of you know other than just you know don't be a wuss, you know, that sort of, uh, that sort of verbiage. So yeah, I, you know, I love hearing from people who say, you know, it's great when I hear people say, well, you know, I use this thing that you sell or I use that thing that you sell, but also hearing people who, you know, have been able to use the free content I've put out there to, to, you know, make a big impact, uh, not just for themselves, but for people they coach is extremely rewarding to me too. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, there's, and there's so much free material out there and and it turned into, I mean, I've sent your fat loss forever book to multiple people that I know in the industry that need help, or they will ask uh, about nutrition certifications and things like that. And a lot of times I'm like, you need to read this right away. Like this is the, the manual. It's like the Bible for fat loss coaching in my opinion. Um, and this kind of leads us into the first topic I really wanted to cover with you today, which is reverse dieting. And the reason I wanted to cover it with you is because I get the question quite often about, should I go into a reverse diet or a recovery diet? And I am a fan of what 3DMJ have created with the recovery diet, but I think there's a lot of gen pop people who assume they need to do a recovery diet and they just, in my opinion, just didn't get even remotely close to lean enough to really need that. Like it's not a dangerous thing to reverse diet. So I want to get your opinion on when you decide the difference between those two and maybe some uh, justification for going the slower route and when that's okay, instead of just a blanket statement that people are making of like, you have to go directly to maintenance right away and, and, you know, gain a little bit of fat when some people don't even get that lean in their fat loss pursuit. So you brought up some excellent points. So the first thing is, um, <clears throat> and I, I had asked it because a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, Lane and Eric and Alan, who people that like typically talk about the recovery diet versus me talking about a reverse diet, you know, they, 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 they disagree on this whole thing. And then when I actually talk to them, we don't actually disagree that much, which is funny because when you actually get people to objectively define their terms, uh, then you can actually have a decent conversation. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the first thing I said is, what kind of maintenance are we talking about? We say we're going to take people back to maintenance. 
because if we're talking about post-diet maintenance, where they're at right now, like what will maintain their body weight right now in a post-diet state, then I absolutely agree that you should st not start anywhere lower than maintenance. Like the, we're done, if we're done with fat loss, we're done with fat loss, right? But I think people don't really understand that term. It's, in fact, I'm sure there's some people listening going, post-diet maintenance, what's he talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, if you've lost a significant amount of body weight, um, your the amount of calories that you're going to be able to maintain your weight on will be significantly decreased by the end of a diet compared to what you maintained them on before. So if we're talking about uh, maintenance in terms of post-diet maintenance, I absolutely agree. If we're talking about maintenance in terms of like we're talking about the competitor, off-season maintenance, I think you're going to regain fat pretty quickly, you know? <laughs> so, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just depends on what the goals are and, and the discussion with the competitor. Um, you know, when it comes to competitors, they probably do need to gain some body fat. I would even say like a recovery diet where you're just going back to maintenance is probably not sufficient because um, even if you are um, <clears throat> increasing calories, uh, and I've had competitors who were able to add, you know, well past what their, you know, estimated maintenance was at the time, you know, well past that who still stay really, really lean. But guess what? The problem is because they're staying so lean, they still have a lot of the same issues in terms of energy, libido, food focus. And so one of the things I've actually changed is if a competitor is going into an off season, that's an actual off season and not just like, oh, well, I've just got, you know, 12 weeks till my next show because like there's not really a, a, a much point in regaining significant amounts of body fat if you're just going to do another show in a few months. Um, if they're going into an actual off season, then usually I, 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 what I do now is I actually start them off a little bit more aggressive uh, initially in the first few weeks, just so they can feel a little bit better and get to a little bit more flexible level. And then I take my foot off the gas once they kind of start feeling better. So basically it's like, all right, let's, let's recover you enough to where you start to feel better, but then let's not just keep you know piling on fat after that you know, we are going to add fat to the course of an off season, but it's much more palatable for a person to do it when it's done slowly and under control as compared to it all happening in a week, you know, and I'm sure, you know, going on that cruise, you, you probably had the thought of like, I worked so hard for this for so many months. And in like three days, it looks like I didn't even diet, yeah, okay. you know, like yeah. it, it's incredible how fast it can go away. And, you know, people say, well, it's all water weight. I'm like, ah, water doesn't stick around for a year, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yes, yeah, some of it is water weight, but some of it, the significant amount is body fat as well. So again, it just depends on the competitor, their goals, what their competition time frame looks like. Um, and then you absolutely nailed it with, it's like, you know, if you have somebody and you take them from an obese state to a, you know, just simply non-obese state, do they need a recovery diet? Do they need, like, what are they recovering from? You know, body fat kind of exists on a, on a, on a inverted U-shaped curve in terms of like, uh, like optimal amounts. Like too much body fat is absolutely a bad thing. You have, you know, too much body fat. You know, we all know the risks of obesity in terms of cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, type 2 diabetes. It also decreases libido, decreases testosterone. And then if you lose body fat, those things improve. But guess what happens if you lose too much body fat? All those same things other than like cardiovascular disease and like the diseases don't seem to come back. 
but the effects on libido, testosterone, mood, um, all those things start to come back. So that stuff really exists on a continuum. So if you're just getting to the middle of that bell curve and becoming normal, what are we actually recovering people from? You know, like in that case, the, the only thing I might use would be a reverse diet just to uh, one, if somebody's starting to have a negative relationship with food, just, you know, try and like improve that Sorry, along, with, along with possible like counseling if needed. Um, and then also uh, to increase their energy expenditure over time, you know, hopefully get their, um, you know, I used to use the term metabolism, but totally energy expenditure really isn't just metabolism because that's BMR. Um, to really get their energy expenditure up, the idea being hopefully they'll be able to lose, you know, weight a little bit easier in the future. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I define things and and how I determine what to use versus another. But I, you know, when it comes to recovery diet versus reverse diet, I, I, I tell people I don't really don't feel like there's that much difference to be honest. Do you? Is there a point where, um, or I guess, how would you explain this to people? Um, where most people are doing a recovery diet or reverse diet because they want to return those negative biofeedback symptoms, let's say. Um, how do you determine what is related to body fat levels versus what is related to calorie intake? Because obviously, if we're talking about a competitor, some of those might be you are just too lean. And I'm sure you have case studies of people, like you said, who you were able to keep that lean because I remember the term used to be like five gram carb to death, basically. And you're just like slowly inching them up and they could stay that lean but they didn't return back to like proper function in some of these terms. Um, whereas somebody who gets, you know, just generally lean, like sustainably lean, they're not that lean to where their body fat's so low that they're having these issues. It's probably more calories, I would assume. How do you explain that to people or how do you determine what that point is as far as uh, what's causing the negative symptoms? Yeah, so it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, <clears throat> like if we look at, and I'm just going to bring up one hormone, if we look at leptin, which is kind of like your master control hormone of appetite uh, and possibly has impacts on um, energy expenditure as well. Um, if you look at leptin, it's influenced by essentially two things. The first thing being, uh, and the, the, the majority of it being, you're just your absolute body fat levels, which um, on a cellular level is sensed by your adipocyte size. So the size of your individual fat cells. So larger fat cells secrete more leptin, smaller fat cells secrete less leptin. So obviously as you lose fat and your fat cells shrink, you start to secrete less leptin. As they expand, you start to secrete more leptin. But there's also an acute response here and the caloric intake, specifically the flux of glucose and fatty acids across the uh, fat cell will actually in the short term increase leptin. Now we don't know what that means for like long-term leptin secretion, but it does appear to be responsive to short-term changes in energy availability as well. Uh, so it's sensing two things. It's sensing long-term energy availability in terms of your stored body fat, as well as short-term energy availability in terms of you know, the calories you're eating. So it's hard to tease apart like what's going to you know make the difference. What, what I would say is like, probably long-term outcomes need long-term signals, you know, and, and shorter term outcomes can be. So things like testosterone, you know, they're not super responsive, like they'll, they'll fluctuate throughout the day for sure. But if you want to see your testosterone go up, you probably have to get your, you know, body fat to go up some, you know, if we're talking about somebody who's stage lean, you're going to have to see some increases in body fat, just, you know, increasing calories is probably not going to do it. 
Now, we don't really know too much about like trying to tease this question apart because there's not really research literature, literature that teases it apart because in the research literature, um, you know, as calories go up, body fat goes up or, or they're, they're doing more extreme versions of things where they're like taking, you know, rodents or people down to low body fat and then they're letting them overfeed. Well, that's not really what you do in a reverse diet or recovery diet. So trying to like figure out, okay, like, could we get their calories up with minimal body fat gain? And what does that look like for these long-term measurements? We don't really know. Um, what I would say is you probably get some of your symptoms that resolve. You know, maybe the food focus resolves a little bit just because you have more calories, you have more flexibility. Um, but, you know, it may be some of the like acutely energy levels may resolve slightly. But in order to get the full benefit, you probably are going to need to regain some body fat. Um, now, do you have to regain the full amount that you had before you started dieting? Um, I think probably not, but you're probably looking at a longer period of recovery compared to if you did allow yourself to go back to your original body fat level. So a lot of it boils down to is, hey, are you willing to you know, feel like crap a little bit longer so you can stay a little bit leaner long term? I know it kind of sucks to have to make that decision, but you know that may just be the decision. And uh, I think people... You know, and part of this might have been my fault back when I talked about reverse dieting. I just I'm, I didn't know enough about this stuff and uh, perhaps I didn't put enough context into it. But I think a lot of people, you know, made it sound like it was a panacea and it's certainly not a panacea. It's just a tool, you know, and, and for some people, it makes a lot of sense. And for other people, it probably doesn't make sense. Does this um, I mean, I have a few follow up questions on this relating to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned maybe feeling like crap a little bit longer to be able to sustain a leaner physique it, relating to body fat set point theory or being able to reset where your body fat sits do you think that that's like do you believe that's possible do you think that there's like a, a route to it it just requires what you just said like maybe just feeling like crap a little bit longer because if you go into a reverse and you take it slow and you're trying to stay in that you're kind of like just dragging out the diet symptoms for longer but is that what's required in order to reset that or eventually are you just going to end up in the same place because that's kind of the argument a lot of people make as well so a couple things. First thing is, I will say, even though I tend to agree with body fat set point or settling point theory, um, it's just a theory. We, we don't necessarily know that it actually is the reality of things. Um, <clears throat> body fat set point tends to focus on the physiology a lot. And now the more modern models kind of think about it more like a biopsychosocial model, where it's, yes, biology has an influence psychology has an influence and social and social and the sociological makeup has an influence, mm. which I actually think is probably closer to the truth because, you know, this is one of the things that I've said to people who are, you know, very pro low carb or they're very pro intermittent fasting or they're very pro, you know, whatever diet they say, well, I just, you know, people won't be hungry on these diets. And I'm like, one, you weren't hungry on that diet. Doesn't mean it won't be for somebody else. And two, if you think hunger is the only reason people eat, you're kidding yourself. Uh, you know, if it was just about hunger, okay, easy. Just eat a ton of vegetables. You know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's not, it's yes. Hunger is an important input into that equation, but we eat for tons of reasons other than hunger, social cues being one of them. Like, you know, most people don't go to a theater and just sit there. You know, I do, I get a diet Coke, you know, <laughs> I just sit there, but a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to the movies, so I got to take some popcorn or I got to have some candy or whatever. 
that, that's a sociological cue. Well, think about this. When was the last time you ever went to like a, um, a get together with friends or family or even for work and there wasn't food available? If you went to something that was a get together and there wasn't food available, you would go, this seems weird. You know, like that, that is something. So food is part of our culture. And I think one of the problems, the fundamental problems we have is people get really focused on the biology and they completely neglect the psychology and the, the sociology as well. And, and I promise I'm going to have a, uh, somewhat of an answer to your original question. Um, and, and then when we look at like uh, the psychology of things, um, there was a great study done where they, they surveyed women who were obese. And they found that over 60% of them had some form of sexual assault or uh, sexual trauma in their past. And uh, many of them specifically said that they overate because they felt safer if they were bigger or they overate as like a trauma response, you know, those sorts mm. of things. So this idea that like, well, if we just solve the hunger problem, you know, that's going to solve the obesity problem. It probably will help, but I don't think it's the full answer to everything. Now to, to, to your point, can we actually change, you know, where people's like native body fat sits? And this is, I guess, more asking kind of from a physiological perspective, I don't know. Um, I think maybe not in terms of leptin, like if we're looking at leptin. However, what we do know about obese people, for example, is, you know, when we discovered the, the leptin gene, I think it was in 1996. We said we, a lot of research were like, well, this is it. This is going to change the game. We're just going to inject people with leptin and um, they're going to lose fat. And we injected obese uh, rats with leptin uh, and nothing happened. <laughs> and we found out that obese people actually secrete more leptin than people who are not obese. Um, now, what was interesting was when they looked at, so they had two different um, really obese phenotypes in these rats. Uh, one was called an OB-OB mouse and one was called a DB-DB mouse. And I don't want to go, the, the design of the experiments was unbelievably elegant. Um, but I, I don't really want to go into trying to explaining it because it might lose the audience. But Essentially, when they gave leptin to OB-OBE mice, which was a leptin knockout, so they did not have the leptin gene, when they gave it to OB-OBE mice, um, they got lean or they got back to normal. When they gave it to DB-DB mice, which were the other um, obese variants, um, nothing happened. So the DB-DB mice actually have a leptin receptor knockout. So just giving leptin did absolutely nothing. Now, how does this relate to humans? Well, People who are um, obese, they are leptin insensitive. So what you find is leptin and insulin sensitivity tend to go hand in hand. And people who are um, obese are leptin insensitive. So just giving more leptin is not going to do anything for them uh, in the long term. Now, what happens is as your body fat levels go down, you, increase, you improve your leptin sensitivity. So I think what may happen is if people lose body fat and sit at a new body fat for a longer period of time, that they may simply just become more sensitive to the leptin they do have. Mm -hmm. Now, there's possibly limits on this. Like, for example, it's not just the same for every person. If we're talking from an obese person coming to normal, I think that's a very viable outcome. You're talking about somebody who's going from normal or lean to extremely lean. 
Um, can they just sit there for a year and all of a sudden that that feels normal to them? I, I don't know. My suspicion would be probably not. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's a great question. We don't really have the, the answers to that yet, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I do think that the other thing that's interesting is you look when you look at the, the hunger data. So this is a really interesting study. So I, I was writing some content for a course I'm doing, and I, I wanted to find a citation demonstrating that as you, you lose weight, um, that your levels of hunger go up. Um, so I actually, I had really, I had a really hard time finding this data as, as weird as that sounds, um, in, in obese people who lose weight. And, and so what actually tends to happen in a post diet period is if you take two people, one who is in, they're both the same level of body fat, you know, let's say all things equal, one has dieted to get there. The other one has not their objective measurements of hunger. So things you can actually objectively measure aren't really different, but the person who is who had lost weight to get there is subjectively perceives their hunger as much greater. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting how this stuff works. Now that, you know, in a practical level doesn't change the outcomes, right? The practical level is that you feel compelled to eat once you've you know, dieted down loss of weight that we tend to relapse to the previous weight. But again, I, is that so much of a, people get really focused on the biology aspect of things. And certainly I did for a time as well, but is it the biology issue or is it the fact that they just kind of fall back into the lifestyle habits that they used to have slowly. And, you know, of course, if you start exercising less, you start, you know, eating some of the same old foods you used to eat in the ways you used to eat them, uh, you become less mindful about your intake, well, then it probably makes sense that you would regain quite a bit of that body fat. Uh, that's a really good point. I think that, um, I mean, two things there. One, uh, it's very timely. I actually had a, a photo shoot yesterday that I've been cutting for. And so today's day one of reverse dieting. And one of the things I was talking about on my story was that one of the easiest things to do to keep on point when you go into the next phase is just have a piece of your routine intact, not just completely scratching your routine or not knowing what to do. Like keep the routine intact, just adjust it. Um, but also like the power of, uh, and I know you've spoken a lot about this, so we won't harp on it, but um, flexible dieting. And that's what it really helped me with too, was just the psychology behind it. Like if you have flexible dieting in place, I think sometimes if you feel like you're just dieting and dieting, dieting, of course, you're going to feel hungrier when you get to that point, like those individuals may have after dieting for a long time. Now, I don't know if they were dieting strictly, but I know in my experience that obviously will have an effect. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, like uh, fat hyperplasia. And I know it's more, uh, there's some research from what I've gotten from what you have written about, but I know there's not a ton that you can just solidify, but you, you kind of mentioned uh, leptin being, uh, I think you said greater with uh, or higher with larger fat cells and not with smaller ones, but hyperplasia would say that we multiply fat cells if we yo-yo diet. So I guess my question is, um, is that one of the dangers of reverse dieting too quick or gaining too quick is because your hunger, hunger signals get kind of out of whack? I'm just assuming that if you gain more fat cells, then your hunger signals will just go rampant because leptin is kind of out of whack. Does that make sense? Yeah. So <clears throat> the data you're talking about is uh, in the rodents. And um, I think it's really cool data 
it would be very hard to repeat the the study in humans. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever get hu good human data on this. I, I think I think it's plausible. I, I I wouldn't say that it's you know something that we've documented yet, but we do know that uh, people who are obese tend to have more fat cells than people who are not. And part of that is, well, the other thing is too, we know that fat cells typically can only get to about a certain size, about a hundred microns in diameter. And part of that is because of not just the fat cell itself, but you know, fat doesn't, adipose tissue is not just like randomly floating throughout your body. Like, obviously, if you've got body fat in a place, it looks the same from, you know, mostly one day to the other, right? So that means it's scaffolded onto tissue. It's not just, you know, free floating. So um, there's what's called an extracellular matrix to adipose tissue. And we tend, to, scientists tend to think, at least from my understanding, that once it gets past 100 microns, the, the ECM or the extracellular matrix can't really accommodate that. And so in order to accommodate increased uh, deposition of, um, you know, free fatty acids and glucose or, or energy, uh, it would therefore have to produce more fat cells. Um, so the, again, there is some evidence in humans demonstrating that people who are overweight or obese uh, have more fat cells. But is that, is that like, uh, you know, the chicken or the egg, right? Are they overweight or obese because they have more fat cells or do they have more fat cells because they're overweight or obese or is, is there interplay between the two? So um, with regards to the yo-yo the, the dieting, what was interesting in these rodent studies was a researcher at University of Denver named McLean. Um, he took obese uh, rats, which were uh, about 700 grams and dieted, dieted them down to 600 grams. And they saw their, their fat cells shrink um, and the number of fat cells uh, didn't change really. Um, and, you know, they lost about a seventh of their body weight, which, you know, if you look at somebody going through a weight loss phase, that's not, you know, that's not out of the realm of possibilities. So if you're, you know, um, let's see here, if you were 70 kilos going down to 60 kilos, I mean, it's pretty, pretty big drop, but it's, you know, there's people that do that. Um, and so they got them down to, to 600 grams, uh, you know, lost a seventh of their body weight. And then they basically gave them free access to food. And they, they monitored what happened with fat cell size, their body weight, um, as well as the, their, um, the number of fat cells. And what they found was um, early in regaining of body weight, um, they noticed an increase in the number of nascent um, what are called pre-adipocytes. So these are not fully differentiated adipocytes. Um, and they saw them go from, uh, you know, undifferentiated pre-adipocytes to actual adipocytes. So they, they actually increased their fat cell number. Um, now I want to point out these animals regained, you know, a seventh of their body weight really quickly, <laughs> really quickly. So, you know, I've, got, I've had people like, oh, I've gained five pounds in a week. Am I going to trigger this response? Well, first off, again, it's in rats. We don't know if it happens in humans. Um, and two, no, like that's not that much. Like that's, that's not that much. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, if we divide, let me, sorry. I just, instead of, I would rather just have actual numbers. So we're talking about regaining, you know, 
15% of their 14% of their body weight, you know, relatively quickly. You know, if I, you know, I've been in a prep where I've gotten down to, you know, around, you know, uh, 87 kilos times 0.14. I mean, that's like putting on 25 pounds of adipose, you know, in a very rapid period of time. Now, have people done that? Sure. Um, so the, the point you're making is that now if you've regained body fat, so let me, let me go back. So the interesting thing about these, uh, this study was these rats, even though when they reached their, their pre-diet weight, 700 grams, when they got back up to that, they still continued to overeat. They still, they continue to body fat overshoot. And the reason that the researchers proposed that this might happen is because they increased their fat cell number, the size of each individual fat cell is now smaller and secreting a lower amount of leptin because leptin secretion is in proportion to your fat cell size. Um, so their hypothesis was, even though they were back up to their original body weight, perhaps they were still sensing a deficit of energy because the size of each individual fat cell was smaller than previous because now they have more of them. And they didn't stop they did not stop overeating until they got to 740 grams. Oh, by the way, at which point their fat cells now matched almost exactly the same size as before they started the diet. So again, really interesting data. Does it happen in humans? There's some evidence it might, we don't know. Um, there, there's the, the data on yo-yo dieting is really hard to parse out because it's really difficult to examine yo-yo dieters you've got to you've kind of got to look at them retroactively you know just people who self-report yo-yo dieting um it's hard to you know do a randomized control chart. well we're going to have you yo-yo diet we're going to have you not like <laughs> most people are going to be okay with that um so you kind of got to look at it from a cohort perspective but there was one study um in in rodents again and i don't want to make too much of rodent data um but they basically had them diet down to a certain amount, then had them overeat back up to their previous body weight, then had them diet down back to the, the body weight that they dieted to before, and then had them go back up, okay? So what was really interesting um, was the first time dieting down, so let's just use that as the one times marker, okay? So they lost weight at a certain rate. They regained it in half the amount of time, okay? And then when they dieted back down, it took them twice as long, even though they were eating the same, it was the same deficit. It took them twice as long to get back down to the, the previous body weight they had achieved through the first time dieting. And then they regained it three times faster on the second time around. So again, this kind of indicates that, you know, perhaps series, multiple series of yo-yo dieting may be really, really bad for body composition. And, you know, not to, to point out that we tend to, we tend to lose lean body mass and body fat when we diet down. And when we regain it very rapidly, it tends to be mostly fat mass. So you're also dealing with the fact that you're, you know, you're losing fat, uh, or sorry, you're losing fat free mass, and you're mostly gaining body fat. I might be reaching with this, but is there any reason to believe that uh, there'd be a, an association with the amount of fat gained that caused the multiplication of fat cells versus the time it was gained? Because the only reason I'm thinking of that is if 
like 25 pounds gained in a week after that, like that's pretty crazy. But to think of somebody going through a diet phase successfully and then over the course of six months, gaining back that 25 pounds or more isn't completely unrealistic. I mean, people do that and weight regain all the time. Oh, but, and I think that somebody doing it over a long period of time is not in danger of this kind of stuff at okay. all. Um, because you're going to be restoring. So they talked about this situation occurring in the context of low leptin and low thyroid hormone uh, with high amounts of insulin sensitivity mm. is kind of the hormonal, the unique hormonal milieu is what they referred to. Well, if you've been gaining body fat plaque slowly, um, your thyroid hormone is also going to be, you know, kind of increasing as you gain back body weight. Um, your insulin sensitivity is going to slightly decrease as you're gaining back some body fat and your leptin is going to slightly increase. So, you know, as opposed to gaining it all at one time where your thyroid and leptin have not had that time to recover, um, that is, you know, probably a much different scenario than somebody who slowly puts it back on. And they have shown that, like, for example, thyroid hormone will block the, di the differentiation of these preadipocytes. So again, th that could be an issue where, um, you know, because if somebody regains it slowly in a more controlled manner, and their thyroid hormone is kind of increasing during that time, you're just not going to see the same outcome. So I would, I, I feel relatively confident in saying that those are two very different scenarios. Got it. So you mentioned uh, uh, rodent research a couple times, and you you mentioned like not wanting to kind of lean on it too much, but uh, you know, and I will admit that early when I first started trying to become evidence-based and look at research and stuff. I was somebody who now I look at it like as the guy who watches UFC and he's like, just punch him already. And it's like, yeah, but you're not in the fucking ring. Um, but I would say like you criticize how research is done, right? Well, it's on animals or it's this. And then I uh, know, usually I criticize the interpretation. There you go. Um, you know, as, as opposed to the, because I don't usually criticize the way the researchers do it unless they make statements in their papers. Right that aren't supported by the actual study that they did. Yeah. Well, my question for you is, is like, because once I became friends with some people and I, I hired a chief science officer who actually has done research and I started learning what it takes to actually put on a study outside of just like the expense of doing it, but like the time and finding participants and keeping them to stick with it throughout the duration, you realize how difficult it actually is. So my question for you is, um, I guess just for people listening, kind of explain that because you have way more experience there, like, uh, how difficult it is and, and what limit you have with actually getting this research done. But then also like how there is a correlation for rodent research. Like some people will be like, well, rats, like how is that relevant to us? But there's obviously some kind of relevance if, if we're continually using things like rodents outside of the fact that we can't just put humans in a cage and do things to them. <laughs> like you can do that with rats. Um, but what's the correlation there? that we can actually, that gives us justification to pull from, if that makes sense. So when it comes to animal research, really it boils down to what are you wanting to study specifically? And then you should pick the animal model that best represents that. Mm. So for example, I used rat rodents in my research because I studied protein metabolism and the rodent is actually a great model for protein metabolism in humans. Most of the studies um, have been validated in humans. So actually most of my research was actually able to be shown to be repeatable in humans. In fact, it's not the exact same research, but Stu Phillips data from McMaster and Stu Phillips is considered the number one uh, protein metabolism researcher in the world. Uh, Stu basically validated um, all the data that came out of our lab for rodents. So 
Um, again, it's a great model for protein metabolism, but then, you know, people will try to, you know, apply it to like say digestion, something like that. Well, if you want to study digestion, you're actually better off studying pigs uh, and, and dogs. Uh, they have a more, uh, I believe dogs, they, they have a much similar digestive tract to humans compared to a rodent. Um, and then, you know, you'll have people like doing research in cows and I'm like, well, cow research is basically good for cows. Like they're ruminants. They're so different than like, uh, you know, so many other animals. Um, so it really depends on, on what you want to study. Like what, what, what's the specific question you're trying to ask? Like cats are actually a good model for type two diabetes, for example. Uh, so are pigs for that matter. So, you know, again, it depends on the, the specific thing that you want to study and then, you know, choosing the appropriate model. But like, if you wanted to look at hypertrophy, I believe rats actually have like an extra um, type of muscle fiber compared to humans, for example. So, you know, how relevant is, you know, some of the rodent research? Well, some of it's relevant and some of it's been validated in humans, but some of it's not. And I think with, with the point being with rodents is we're looking at like, how does it fit, right? If we only have rodent data showing something, whereas the human, like, uh, the epidemiology doesn't fit, the uh, cohort studies don't fit, and the randomized control trials don't fit. Well, then to hell with what the rodent data says or what the animal data says, we have hard outcome data in humans, right? Like that's what should matter. Um, now, some people will say, well, why don't they just do stuff in humans? Well, here's why. And, and this is the, this is the, every time I put up a study, somebody go, oh, 20 people, what does that really mean? You know, I'm like, okay, we, yeah, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, or then it'll be, well, it was only for four weeks. Or it'll be, well, it was free living. You know, the, how can they be sure they were eating what they told them to do? And it's like, yeah, you really don't understand how much this stuff costs. Like, just to give you an idea, a study of like eight people in a metabolic ward for four weeks would probably run you half a million dollars. I'm just, I'm guessing, but I feel pretty confident in that estimate. That's for eight people for a highly controlled environment. Right. So, so good luck. Good luck. I, I don't know if people out there listening know this, but, you know, money doesn't fall from trees for research. Like somebody has to pay for it. And oh, by the way, as a researcher, you would actually like to, you know, eat and have money to do stuff with. So you've got to pay the researchers. And then uh, if you're going to perform, you know, more uh, analysis, that's going to cost more money just to run a single sample for our stable isotopes uh, from start to finish is probably close to $100. So now you do you know, 100 samples and you've spent $10,000 just to get your protein synthesis data, right? Uh, for, what we, for what we looked at. Um, so those costs can add up very quickly. And oh, by the way, if you wanna highly control people's environment, like you wanna keep them you know, in a metabolic ward or you wanna tell them what they're gonna eat, now you've actually got to pay them, right? Like actual, so the, the, a great example of this was NASA put out um, a, uh, an ad. They were going to pay people $20,000 to just lay in bed for 70 days because they wanted to, to study the effects of unloading because obviously when astronauts go to space, there's no gravity. Mm -hmm. um, they lose massive amounts of muscle. So they wanted to, you know, what's the best way to model this on earth? Well, it's to just have people lay in bed. Well, you mean people weren't like just jumping up and down to like lay in a hospital bed and not be able to do anything else? I mean, video games are cool, but I'm, you know, I'm going to be pretty bored after a couple of days, you know? So, um, and I'm going to get to the end of Netflix within a couple, you know, a couple of days too. So, 
it's like, yeah, you're going to have to pay those. But oh, by the way, they can't go work their job necessarily because they're in bed. So again, if you want human studies and you want a high subject number and you want it for a long period of time, it's going to be really uncontrolled, right? We're going to be talking about like questionnaires um, and, you know, just like maybe small amounts of sampling, right? Like people will, you know, crap on the, the BMI, or all the BMI is useless. It's not useless. It's, it's less useful for an individual person, but on a population level, like if we survey 100,000 people and X population has a greater BMI than Y population, we can be pretty confident that they probably have more body fat, you know? Um, so again, you want uh, long duration, high subject number in humans, it's gonna be with very little control. If you want high amount of control and high subject number, it's not gonna be long. It's gonna be an acute study for like a day or an hour, okay? You want uh, a high control over a long period of time, it's not gonna be very many people. And if you want high subject number with high control over a long period of time, it's gonna be in rats. That's, that's, that's just the options you have. So none of these things make a study good nor bad. You just have to understand the context of how it fits into things. And this is why now I tell people, I don't get excited over one study. Like I might get a little excited over one study, but I'm always going to look at that study as how does this fit in with the, the, the consensus of the evidence right now, right? Uh, you know, when something's brand new, I'll say, uh, yeah, wake me up when they've got 10 studies showing, you know, the same directionality of the evidence, right? Uh, and then when they got a dose response, then like show me that too. Um, so you can always... Always, 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 you can always find a study to support whatever claim you want to make. You know, like there's people now who seem to think that saturated fat is good for you and seed oils are bad for you, you know, compared to saturated fat. And they'll do like these mental gymnastics where they're looking, well, look at populations that eat high amounts of seed oils. They have these diseases. And then they'll say, well, look at this animal model where they did this, this, and this. I'm like, okay, but what, what, well, what about the human data where they, they substitute uh, seed oils instead of saturated fat and the risk of heart disease goes down? Uh, isn't that what we should actually care about? Like, uh, so people, the problem is people don't know how to parse out like the hierarchy of evidence, like what's good evidence, what's bad evidence. You know, a meta-analysis of, you know, 50 studies with 2 million people you know, showing similar directionality is not equivalent to a rodent study, you know, that showed an opposite thing. But people don't know that. They just, they see a study cited and they just assume, okay, well, that confirms my bias. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. And unfortunately, we know this from our website because we track clicks on our website. You know, I, I did a, a, a huge debunk of the um, uh, Paul Saladino appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast. It was uh, in Google Docs. It was 48 pages long and had 283 citations, I think. Do you know what percentage of people clicked a single citation? Less than 1%. <laughs> Less than 1% of people clicked a single citation. So, you know, and, and we, are, we make ours super easy. Like if you click it, it takes you right to the citation, right? Like it's, we don't make it hard to get to. So if, you, if that's the case, you know that when somebody just says there was a study done and they found X, that they're not going to go look it up and check it out. 
Like I do that, but that's because I kind of make that my job, you know, because mm-hmm. I want people to be informed. But, you know, then people will say, well, you know, this person wrote this book with all these citations. Who cares? I can get a monkey to make citations. It doesn't mean that they're actually representative of what the data says. Yeah. A um, few things just to add to that real quick. Uh, number one, you guys put out a really good uh, guide or piece of content that I shared on my story, but I'll link it in the show notes. And it's kind of like how to read research as somebody who's maybe not a researcher, how to understand it a little bit better. Um, and to that effect, I, I want to add for people listening, because I will often talk about research in my content and the way I've kind of layered my... I guess it would be a hierarchy is I don't really refer to research or talk about research until I have heard somebody else who I respect who can interpret research better than I can already do so. So I have research review subscriptions. I follow your content. I have a chief science officer on staff. I wait, like I will read something and I think I like get it, but then I will wait and then I will, I will follow up with our CSO. And sometimes I'm pretty close and sometimes I'm like full transparency. I'm just not there because I'm not a researcher. I don't have a PhD and I haven't actually done the research. And I think people forget how complicated some of those papers actually are and how much time it takes to actually read a full research paper. Um, so it's great people like you are, are actually doing this stuff. And, uh, and you mentioned something in there that actually is a perfect kind of transition to the, one of the talks I want to talk about, and that was fats. And you brought up saturated fats. Um, but fats in general, uh, I know there was a re- recent one that talked about uh, testosterone levels and saturated fat. And obviously the paleo movement was, I mean, they're putting butter in coffee and it's like cranking saturated fat up. And uh, Eric Helms, uh, uh, Spencer Nadolsky, and one other guy put out a good podcast on cholesterol and saturated fats recently um, that was really informative. But my question is something that I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about. You've talked a lot about how you know, it's not hormones or calories. I mean, it's always calories, but like hormones influence calories. It's kind of all kind of working together. But when it comes to hormones and fats, a lot of people really like to hang their hat on that and say like fats are the one thing. And my question is, how much is it really fats and not just calories? Because people will be in a diet and a deficit and they're like, oh, my fats are too low. And I'm always kind of like, well, maybe you're just dieting and therefore your calories are causing that. Because I would assume if you were at maintenance or a surplus and even on a low fat diet, maybe even lower than I would recommend, but your calories were sufficient, maybe you wouldn't have those hormone problems. I guess I'm just asking your opinion on the, the topic. Yeah, I think that there is evidence that dietary fats can affect, you know, like the synthesis of um, testosterone and mm-hmm. whatnot. However, we really got to think about like, all right, why do we care about testosterone? Most of us care about testosterone for energy, you know, libido and uh, building muscle. So what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, small, like 10, 20% changes in serum testosterone don't really appear to affect any of those. Like, I mean, maybe if you're like on a kind of a, a precipice of being low or too low, maybe, you know, Um, but for the most part, yeah, if you like double your testosterone or if you're, you know, you're taking exogenous testosterone and you, you know, you jack it up way up. Yeah. There'll there'll be a difference. Um, but like these small modifications through diet, which are usually like five to 10% don't really appear to do much. Um, and they don't do, they don't appear to do anything for body composition either. Uh, so yeah, like I'm always like, okay, well, why are we, why are we trying to get this, you know, 5% increase in testosterone or or whatever it is? And you bring up a good point too. Like, 
yeah, if your fats are low, your calories are probably low, right? Now, they have done studies to show that if you get fats low enough, uh, even with sufficient amount of calories, it can lower testosterone. But in but is it enough to like make a huge difference in your body composition? I don't think so. Um, and I don't think there's any evidence that it does. And, you know, people who are like, well, just eat more, cl more cholesterol because you get more testosterone. There are, I think, 20 plus steps in terms of reactions from cholesterol to the outcome of testosterone, the majority of which have feedback regulation. This is not as simple as just, well, we're going to pump more cholesterol in, so you're going to have more testosterone. That is not how that shit works. It is, it is far more complicated and regulated than that. So, um, yeah, I think I would say that, you know, I think it's important to have a sufficient amount of dietary fat. Um, but, you know, it, so again, I always say, what are we, what is the hard outcome measurements we care about? Are there any, is there any data looking at like lean mass with different kinds of dietary fat? And there's not many, but there is one that was calorie equated uh, where they did like saturated fat or replaced with polyunsaturated fat. And I mean, it's one study, so I don't, I don't want to get too excited about it, but they showed that the group that was getting the polyunsaturated fat actually uh, had more lean mass at the end of the study than the group getting the saturated fat. So it's like, well, saturated fat's going to increase testosterone. Okay, well, then we should, you know, if it actually matters, then we should see it increase the amount of lean mass they have. So how do you explain this outcome, right? And when people criticize this stuff, they're like, oh, well, they put it in muffins. Okay, so they put the saturated fat in muffins versus, uh, you know, oils. How, well, what's, what's your point? It all gets broken down into the same thing. You know, like when it gets into the body, these, these people, these armchair scientists trying to criticize this stuff who have no idea what they're talking about it just drives me absolutely nuts. Um, but yeah, I'm not ready to say that, you know, polyunsaturated fats are more anabolic than saturated fat. Like I said, it's just one study. But again, there's no evidence that saturated fat is more anabolic than polyunsaturated fat. And the one study we do have kind of says the opposite. So, you know, again, I always tell people like, what do we care about as the hard outcome data? Because this gets tossed around a lot with, for example, with fat oxidation or fat burning. So well, this increased fat oxidation this much. You eat a high fat diet, increases fat oxidation, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, that's cool. Fat oxidation is not the same thing as fat loss, like the actual loss of body fat. Those are actually different things um, because your fat loss is the balance between the amount of fat you burn or oxidize and the amount of fat you store. And guess what happens when you eat a high fat diet? you burn more fat for sure. You also store more fat because your body really only stores dietary fat as fat. Less than 2% of the fat that winds up in adipose is from carbohydrate. So if you eat a low carb or if you eat a low fat diet and a high carb diet, what, what do you have? We well, have low amounts of fat oxidation. You also have low amounts of fat storage. So, so how do we figure, well, why don't we just look at the amount of body fat people lose in studies? And when we equate calories and we equate protein, there's no difference between high carb and low carb diets in terms of actual loss of body fat. So I really want to emphasize to the audience, like, think about like, what is the measurement you actually care about when you're talking about this stuff? Do you care about all these surrogate measurements or do you care about the like hard outcomes? Because if you find yourself like surrogate measurements are cool, they're interesting, but if they don't align with the outcome data, who cares? 
because what we should actually care about is the outcome data. Yeah. I want to, I want to learn how to get more muscle and less body fat. I don't really give a damn about fat oxidation. Right. Um, I, I have one more like kind of just uh, generalized question uh, and then we'll kind of wrap up with uh, where people can find your stuff. You, I know you have some stuff coming up that I want you to, to share with the listeners and everything. Um, and the question is kind of about like for you personally, science versus experience and not that one is better than the other, but you know, you brought up two categories right there. And like one is like the, the polyunsaturated versus saturated fat. Um, and I would throw mono unsaturated fat in this as well. But when I think of like bodybuilders over time, like majority of them, natural or not, they a lot of them were consuming a lot of olive oil. Uh, I would say saturated fat wise, eggs, whole eggs, but like a lot of olive oil, um, avocado, like quote unquote healthy fat sources, nut butter, things like that. Not a ton of saturated fat. Um, when it comes to low carb versus high carb, most of them followed a high carb diet. So I'm not saying that one fat is better than the other or that high carb is better than low carb. But when we have all these people who are such big proponents of low carb living and dieting and stuff like that. And they're never nearly as jacked as the people who have like mastered the art and science of losing body fat and building muscle science or not. You got to kind of wonder like, well, we have to lean a little bit on experience and see what the most successful people have done with their body composition. And one of the things I've always appreciated about you is that you're actually a coach too, and you actually have coached a lot of people. And I think there's also some people who lean on research and uh, being a quote unquote author of whatever they're writing and they don't actually have experience coaching real people through real things. Um, so my question is, you know, how do you, like, at what point do you still lean on? I know you, you say like you like to see multiple studies, but do you still tend to kind of lean on your experience just as much or in certain cases, maybe more in some cases, maybe less compared to just research? You know, it depends on what we're, what we're talking about the specific subject, you know, when it comes to like, um, you know, I think research gives you the principles. It's going to tell you what, well, what's BS versus not, um, you know, because, and I, I got into this today. Somebody was like, Hey, look at this message. This person sent me. And this person was in a debate with someone about fasted cardio. And the person's like, well, you can't say that, you know, and I said, you know, fasted cardio is no better than regular fed cardio for fat loss. Cause that's what the studies conclusively show. And the person's response is, well, you can't argue with the results of all these people that have done fasted cardio. And I'm like, well, I'm, I never said it can't work. I just said it's, it's not superior. Like you, need to, you need to open your ears a little bit and actually listen to what people say before you start spewing out logical fallacies. So uh, I absolutely rely a lot of my experience. Um, but I think, you know, ideally experience and, and evidence are going to line up. Um, the, the problem with anecdote, which is just what we're talking about, personal anecdote, right? The problem with personal anecdote is you can always find the opposite personal anecdote. Mm. And then the question becomes, whose anecdote has more value, right? Like, so we, like, this is like when keto people and, and vegan people go with each other, right? Well, I lost weight doing this. Well, I haven't eaten animal protein in 15 years and look how jacked I am. Boom, mic drop. And it's like, okay, so who's right? Like, you have no, there's no, like this is why science exists because if we just went based off of our feelings, then we'd probably still be like draining blood out of people because we thought their blood was poison. You know what I mean? When, when it comes to like uh, illness, uh, we'd be drilling holes in their head. Sometimes they do drill holes in people's heads, but it's for good reason. Um, but yeah, like we'd still be doing all kinds of wonky things because we're operating based on our feelings. 
if we still operated based on our feelings, we probably, you know, never would have gone to space. And we also probably would still think, hey, the Earth's flat because I can look right out my window and it looks flat, you know, because those are my feelings and those are valid. Um, in fact, we still have people who think the Earth is flat. So, you know, <laughs> anything's possible. Um, so I, I think the, the point I'm making is that anecdote is fine. And it's also your experience is perfectly valid for you. Absolutely. But it means very little for anybody else. And I think what science does is it allows us to look and say, what do we think is going to be the best practice for the majority of people? Understanding that there's going to be outliers, understanding that not everybody's going to respond the same to the same treatment. But what, what gives us, if, if we're going to start with a client that we don't know anything about, should we start with some like really extreme crazy protocol or should we start with where like the average, you know, 60, 70% of people where we know the treatment works, right? I'm going to start with the average. And then if I have to massage things to like the, the ends then I can do that. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think experience is important, but it's hard to, it again, when you rely solely based on experience, you just end up doing the same things over and over and over and over and over because you assume that everyone is like you and not everyone's like you. Um, and I'll even say this in my case, like, um, you know, the whole reason I kind of started flexible dieting was because I was the whole eat clean person, uh, you know, circa 2001, 2002, when I first started bodybuilding. And what I found was, oh, yeah, I, I, I was at college. Uh, I'd eat clean until the weekend. And then I, you know, binge my face off because as soon as I had like one bad food, it was like, well, I already screwed it up completely. So I might as well just have whatever I want. Um, and then I finally was like, well, you know, is it, is it the one slice of pizza that's hurting me? Or is it the fact that I'm eating the whole freaking thing? You know, so um, I started tracking my macros and I started like just saying, well, if I want something, I'm going to have it just fit my macros. And for me, that like my adherence, like 100%, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very, I don't know if it's my ADHD or what, but I'm a very black and white person. And if it's like, um, if I can, if, as long as I can have what I want, I don't really have that bad of cravings until I get super lean. In fact, I lost 30 pounds a couple of years ago because I came down a weight class in powerlifting. And my wife was like, it is disgusting how easy this is for you. Um, she's like, you're like a robot. You just hit your macros. And, but, and so I, when I had that, I was like, oh, this is the solution for everybody. Like this will make dieting easy. But well, it turned out, hey, dumb, dumb. Not everyone's like you. Not everyone has that. And I'm not talking about biologically. I'm just talking about like psychologically. For some people, tracking macros is extremely like, you know, fatiguing and requires an enormous amount of willpower. Um, whereas like they say, well, if I just, you know, intermittent fast, if I just restrict my time, my feeding window this time, I don't feel hungry. So I've, I've really come back to center on this and said, you know what? I think, you know, the tool, the, the, these things are all just tools. Now I might use my screwdriver a lot more than I use, you know, my, 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 my power drill but I still got my power drill for when I need it. Right. Because, you know, some, one job might not work with a screwdriver. And I kind of look at, you know, diets and, and different, you know, you know, um, different dietary nutritional strategies like that. There's no, there's no solutions, only trade-offs. And I, I think that's an important thing to understand. I think everybody's looking for this great panacea. And uh, the reality is, is that if you're a good coach, you need to pay attention to your clients. And most of, 95% of being a good coach is just trying to find a way to get that client to really be compliant for a long period of time.
Yeah. Um, no, I love that. I think that uh, I can relate on many fronts. And again, that's why experience with people helps so much. I, I remember years and years and years ago when I first read about like the warrior diet, I, I was in college and interning as a trainer and trying to get my own lifting in. So intermittent fasting worked really well for me. And I put a bunch of clients on it and it worked for maybe one out of 20. And it was like, oh, this is not the thing. Uh, but experience allows you to see that. And, you know, and same thing with uh, the more I dug into research and the more I learned that, oh, that boiled down to calories in, calories out. Oh, that too. Oh, that too. Or, oh, frequency. That's the thing in training. Oh, wait, no, volume equated doesn't really matter. And you just kind of start learning there's these principles and there's methods to adhere to those principles. And I think that um, in my career and experience, it's like there's anecdote I lean on, but once I, lean on that. I I'm curious. I want to investigate like, why is this working? And then it always kind of boils down to the same shit and science is kind of boring in that sense. But I think it's, that's the truth that people need to hear. So, um, and again, obviously you've rubbed off on me a lot over the last probably decade of just learning all this stuff. So a lot of that came from, from you. And and I know that you agree with a lot of that too. So, um, Lane, it's been great. I'm, I'm really excited that I got to have you on the podcast and this is an awesome conversation. I think a lot of people needed to hear, uh, do us a favor and just give us everywhere they can find you for your content. But also if you have anything coming out, obviously you have your books, but I, I think you have a couple things in the works. I don't know if they're like, you're putting anything out to tease them yet. Um, uh, but if you are, where can people find it or look for when it does launch? So yeah, we, um, you kind of mentioned it earlier, we're going to have a research review coming out um, on biolane.com. So that's going to be called reps, which is research explained in practical summaries. And uh, I know you said you subscribe, you subscribe to a few different research reviews. You know, a lot of the, the gap we're trying to fill is I think a lot of the research reviews out there are almost tailored towards scientists. Like they're still, they're still pretty heavy uh, to, to read through some of them. Uh, in fact, I actually subscribe to a few different research reviews only from the perspective that like, I'm like, I can't just keep up with all the studies that come out. And as a scientist, I love it. But I think even as an average person, that would still intimidate a lot of people. So we're trying to kind of get that like entry level person who maybe like has absolutely no experience, no idea. And we're going to try and get it to something that they can understand. Right. And that's tough because, you know, when you're doing that, you really kind of have to generalize a little bit. But scientists hate generalizing because there's so much context and nuance. But I think one of the things I'm good at is, is providing that. And so uh, reps is myself and uh, one of our employees, James Longstrom. And James has a master's in exercise science from University of South Florida in Bill Campbell's lab. Uh, he's fantastic. Um, so he and I like select studies every month and we're going to review five studies that relate to nutrition, training, um, muscle growth, strength, those sorts of things, and try to basically translate them into lay person uh, so the lay person can understand them. So, uh, and you mentioned our um, how to read research guide. Um, you know, we put that up. That's by the time this comes out, that probably won't be free anymore. So we had it up as a free download. Um, that will be uh, available for all of our reps members. Absolutely. Um, it'll also be available for purchase in the BioLane store as well. So um, that's our, our big thing that's launching very, very soon. Uh, in fact, it should be probably this week. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, an uh, Bill Campbell and I, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Campbell, yeah. but uh, we're, oh yeah, you did. You did say that you guys, uh, you guys text. Uh, so Bill Campbell and I are working on uh, a coaching certification that will specifically target um online coaches who want to help people modify body composition. So originally we were thinking about doing it just as like a contest prep certification. 
And then we realized that, hey, these principles are still really similar. So we're expanding it in terms of it's, it's anybody who wants to modify body composition, which I think is the vast majority of online coaches. You know, if you, if you don't want to go back to college or you want to supplement your, your college education with something a little bit more specific and granular, uh, this is going to be a great option. Um, and there's no, you know, there's studies that there's, I'm sorry, there's, uh, there's certifications out there. There's like personal training certifications and then there's nutrition certifications, but a lot of the nutrition stuff is stuff you don't really care about, like in terms of body composition, this is going to be specific, all the stuff you need to know for body composition. So nutrition, training, uh, aerobic exercise, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I've, 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 we've just finished writing the rough draft of all the material. And I got to say, it's pretty badass. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's, that's the stuff. And people probably know some of the stuff, the other stuff we have, like our app carbon diet coach, which is our nutrition coaching app. And then, uh, like you, we have a, a team of coaches called team BioLane, uh, which is, uh, you know, we, we do offer one-on-one coaching as well. Perfect. And then people can find me everywhere, uh, as BioLane, B-I-O-L-A-Y-N-E. Yeah. Um, I'll link all that in the, uh, the description for you guys to check out. I highly recommend, uh, Lane is one of the people that I'm constantly looking at his content. So highly recommend all that. Um, if you're a coach and you haven't let, read fat loss forever, you got to read that. Um, I've used that with all my coaches. I I've literally put multiple bikini competitors on stage using your, uh, com- contest prep guide as like my backbone index to kind of refer back to, um, the reverse diet guide. So everything he puts out is really great guys. I highly recommend it. Um, Bill and I actually, uh, we've done a couple podcasts. So he's been on the show before and we jumped on a call not too long ago. And he was kind of asking for my opinion on, um, what you guys were working on just as far as like what I wish I saw for my coaching staff. And I'm very excited for you guys to launch that. I think it's, it's much needed and the, the industry is going to benefit from it extremely. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be something that a lot of uh, gyms or coaching, you know, people who have coaches will want them to go through. So yeah. I'm, I'm super excited for it too. Yeah. Um, well, again, I don't want to waste any more time, man. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast and uh, yeah, we'll stay connected. Thanks Cody. Appreciate the time, man.